Chapter Nine of Sailing Alone Around the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum. Chapter Nine. Consisting of repairing the spray's sails, savages and an obstreperous anchor, a spider fight, an encounter with Black Pedro, a visit to the steamship Columbia, on the defensive against a fleet of canoes, a record of voyages through the strait, a chance cargo of tallow. I was determined to rely on my own small resources to repair the damages of the great gale which drove me southward towards the Horn after I had passed from the Strait of Magellan out into the Pacific. So when I had got back into the Strait by way of Coburn Channel, I did not proceed eastward for help at the Sandy Point settlement, but turning again into the northwestward reach of the Strait, set to work with my palm and needle at every opportunity. When at anchor and when sailing, it was slow work, but little by little the square sail on the boom expanded to the dimensions of a serviceable mainsail with a peak to it and a leech besides. If it were not the best setting sail afloat, it was at least very strongly made and would stand a hard blow. A ship meeting the spray long afterwards reported her as wearing a mainsail of some improved design and patent reefer, but that was not the case. The spray for a few days after the storm enjoyed fine weather and made fair time through the strait for the distance of twenty miles, which in these days of many adversities I called a good run. The weather, I say, was fine for a few days, but it brought little rest. Care for the safety of my vessel and even for my own life was in no wise lessened by the absence of heavy weather. Indeed, the peril was even greater, inasmuch as the savages, on comparatively fine days, ventured forth on their marauding excursions, and in boisterous weather disappeared from sight. Their wretched canoes being frail and undeserving the name of craft at all. This being so. I now enjoyed gales of wind as never before, and the spray was never long without them during her struggles about Cape Horn. I became in a measure inured to the life, and began to think that one more trip through the strait, if perchance the sloop should be blown off again, would make me the aggressor and put the Fuegians entirely on the defensive. This feeling was forcibly borne in on me at Snug Bay. Where I anchored at grey morning after passing Cape Froward to find, when broad day appeared, that two canoes which I had eluded by sailing all night were now entering the same bay stealthily under the shadow of the high headland. They were well manned, and the savages were well armed with spears and bows. At a shot from my rifle across the bows, both turned aside into a small creek out of range. In danger now of being flanked by the savages in the bush close aboard, I was obliged to hoist the sails which I had barely lowered, and make across to the opposite side of the strait, 
a distance of six miles. But now I was put to my wit's end as to how I should weigh anchor, for through an accident to the windlass right here I could not budge it. However, I had set all sail and filled away, first hauling short by hand. The sloop carried her anchor away as though it was meant to be always towed in this way underfoot, and with it she towed a ton or more of kelp from a reef in the bay, the wind blowing a wholesome breeze. Meanwhile I worked till blood started from my fingers, and with one eye over my shoulder for savages I watched at the same time and sent a bullet whistling whenever I saw a limb or a twig move, for I kept a gun always at hand, and an Indian appearing then within range would have been taken as a declaration of war. As it was, however, my own blood was all that was spilt, and from the trifling accident of sometimes breaking the flesh against a cleat or a pin which came in the way when I was in haste. Sea-cuts in my hands, from pulling on hard wet ropes, were sometimes painful and often bled freely, but these healed when I finally got away from the strait into fine weather. After clearing Snug Bay, I hauled the sloop to the wind, repaired the windlass, and hove the anchor to the hawse, catted it, and then stretched across to a port of refuge under a high mountain about six miles away, and came to in nine fathoms close under the face of a perpendicular cliff. Here my own voice answered back, and I named the place Echo Mountain. Seeing dead trees further along where the shore was broken, I made a landing for fuel, taking besides my axe a rifle which on these days I never left far from hand. But I saw no living thing here, except a small spider which had nested in a dry log, that I boated to the sloop. The conduct of this insect interested me now more than anything else around the wild place. In my cabin it met, oddly enough, a spider of its own size and species that had come all the way from Boston. A very civil little chap, too, but mighty spry. Well, the Fuegian threw up its antennae for a fight, but my little Bostonian downed it at once, then broke its legs, and pulled them off one by one so dexterously that in less than three minutes from the time the battle began, the Fuegian spider didn't know itself from a fly. I made haste the following morning to be under way after a night of wakefulness on the weird shore. Before weighing anchor, however, I prepared a cup of warm coffee over a smart wood fire in my great Montevideo stove. In the same fire was cremated the Fuegian spider, slain the day before by the little warrior from Boston which a Scots lady at Cape Town long after named Bruce, upon hearing of its prowess at Echo Mountain. The spray now reached away for Coffee Island, which I sighted on my birthday, February 20, 1896. There she encountered another gale that brought her in the lee of Great Charles Island for shelter. On a bluff point on Charles were signal fires, and a tribe of savages mustered here since my first trip through the strait, manned their canoes to put off for the sloop. It was not prudent to come to, the anchorage being within bowshot of the shore, which was thickly wooded, but I made signs that one canoe might come alongside, while the sloop ranged about under sail in the lee of the land. 
The others I motioned to keep off, and, incidentally, laid a smart Martini Henry rifle in sight, close at hand on the top of the cabin. In the canoe that came alongside, crying their never-ending begging word, Yama Schooner, were two squaws and one Indian, the hardest specimens of humanity I have ever seen in any of my travels. Yama Schooner was their plaint when they pushed off from the shore, and Yama Schooner it was when they got alongside. The squaws beckoned for food, while the Indian, a black-visaged savage, stood sulkily as if he took no interest at all in the matter. But on my turning my back for some biscuits and jerked beef for the squaws, the buck sprang on deck and confronted me, saying in Spanish jargon that we had met before. I thought I recognised the tone of his Yama schooner, and his full beard identified him as the black Pedro whom it was true I had met before. "'Where are the rest of the crew?' he asked, as he looked uneasily around, expecting hands, maybe, to come out of the fore-scuttle and deal him his just deserts for many murders. "'About three weeks ago,' he said, "'when you passed up here, I saw three men on board. Where are the other two?' I answered him briefly that the same crew were still on board. "'But,' said he, I see you are doing all the work. And with a leer, he added, as he glanced at the mainsail, Hombre valiente. I explained that I did all the work in the day, while the rest of the crew slept, so that they would be fresh to watch for Indians at night. I was interested in the subtle cunning of this savage, knowing him as I did, perhaps better than he was aware. Even had I not been advised before I sailed from Sandy Point, I should have measured him for an arch-villain now. Moreover, one of the squaws, with that spark of kindliness which is somehow found in the breast of even the lowest savage, warned me by a sign to be on my guard, or Black Pedro would do me harm. There was no need of the warning, however, for I was on my guard from the first, and at that moment held a smart revolver in my hand, ready for instant service. "'When you sailed through here before,' he said, "'you fired a shot at me,' adding with some warmth that it was muy malo. I affected not to understand, and said, "'You have lived at Sandy Point, have you not?' He answered frankly, "'Yes.' and appeared delighted to meet one who had come from the dear old place. "'At the mission?' I queried. "'Why, yes,' he replied, stepping forward as if to embrace an old friend. I motioned him back, for I did not share his flattering humour. "'And you know Captain Pedro Samblick?' continued I. "'Yes,' said the villain, who had killed a kinsman of Samblick. "'Yes, indeed.' He is a great friend of mine. I know it, said I. Samblick had told me to shoot him on sight. Pointing to my rifle on the cabin, he wanted to know how many times it fired. Quantos, said he. When I explained to him that the gun kept right on shooting, his jaw fell, and he spoke of getting away. I did not hinder him from going. I gave the squaws biscuits and beef, and one of them gave me several lumps of tallow in exchange, 
and I think it worth mentioning that she did not offer me the smallest pieces, but with some extra trouble handed me the largest of all the pieces in the canoe. No Christian could have done more. Before pushing off from the sloop, the cunning savage asked for matches, and made as if to reach with the end of his spear the box I was about to give him. But I held it towards him on the muzzle of the rifle, the one that kept on shooting. The chap picked the box off the gun gingerly enough to be sure, but he jumped when I said, Quadeo, look out, at which the scores laughed and seemed not to be at all displeased. Perhaps the wretch had clubbed them that morning for not gathering mussels enough for his breakfast. There was a good understanding among us all. From Charles Island the spray crossed over to Fortescue Bay, where she anchored and spent a comfortable night under the lee of high land, while the wind howled outside. The bay was deserted now. They were Fortescue Indians whom I had seen at the island, and I felt quite sure they could not follow the spray in the present hard blow. Not to neglect a precaution, however, I sprinkled tacks on deck before I turned in. On the following day the loneliness of the place was broken by the appearance of a great steamship making for the anchorage with a lofty bearing. She was no Diego craft. I knew the sheer, the model, and the poise. I threw out my flag and directly saw the stars and stripes flung to the breeze from the great ship. The wind had then abated, and towards night the savages made their appearance from the island, going direct to the steamer to Yamaskuna. Then they came to the spray to beg more, or to steal all, declaring that they had got nothing from the steamer. Black Pedro had come alongside again. My own brother could not have been more delighted to see me, and he begged me to lend him my rifle to shoot a guanaco for me in the morning. I assured the fellow that if I remained there another day I would lend him the gun, but I had no mind to remain. I gave him a cooper's draw-knife and some other small implements which would be of service in canoe-making, and bade him be off. Under the cover of darkness that night I went to the steamer, which I found to be the Columbia, Captain Henderson, from New York, bound for San Francisco. I carried all my guns along with me, in case it should be necessary to fight my way back. In the chief mate of the Columbia, Mr. Hannibal, I found an old friend, and he referred affectionately to days in Manila when we were there together, he in the Southern Cross, and I in the Northern Light, both ships as beautiful as their names. The Columbia had an abundance of fresh stores on board. The captain gave his steward some orders, and I remember that the guileless young man asked me if I could manage, besides other things, a few cans of milk and a cheese. When I offered my Montevideo gold for the supplies, the captain roared like a lion and told me to put my money up. It was a glorious outfit of provisions of all kinds that I got. Returning to the spray, where I found all secure, I prepared for an early start in the morning. It was agreed that the steamer should blow her whistle for me, if first on the move. I watched the steamer off and on through the night for the pleasure alone of seeing her electric lights, a pleasing sight in contrast to the ordinary Fuegian canoe with a brand of fire in it. The sloop was the first under way, 
but the Columbia soon following passed and saluted as she went by. Had the captain given me his steamer, his company would have been no worse off than they were two or three months later. I read afterwards in a late California paper, The Columbia will be a total loss. On her second trip to Panama, she was wrecked on the rocks off the California coast. The spray was then beating against wind and current, as usual in the strait. At this point the tides from the Atlantic and the Pacific meet, and in the strait, as on the outside coast, their meeting makes a commotion of whirlpools and comas that in a gale of wind is dangerous to canoes and other frail craft. A few miles further along was a large steamer ashore, bottom up. Passing this place, the sloop ran into a streak of light wind, and then, a most remarkable condition for straight weather, it fell entirely calm. Signal fire sprang up at once on all sides, and then more than twenty canoes hove in sight, all heading for the spray. As they came within hail, their savage crews cried, Amigo, Yamascuna! Anclas, Aqui! Bueno Puerto, Aqui! and like scraps of Spanish mixed with their own jargon. I had no thought of anchoring in their good port. I hoisted the sloop's flag and fired a gun, all of which they might construe as a friendly salute or an invitation to come on. They drew up in a semicircle, but kept outside of eighty yards, which in self-defence would have been the death-line. In their mosquito fleet, was a ship's boat stolen probably from a murdered crew. Six savages paddled this rather awkwardly with the blades of oars which had been broken off. Two of the savages standing erect wore sea-boots, and this sustained the suspicion that they had fallen upon some luckless ship's crew, and also added a hint that they had already visited the spray's deck, and would now, if they could, try her again. Their sea-boots, I have no doubt, would have protected their feet and rendered carpet-tacks harmless. Paddling clumsily, they passed down the strait at a distance of a hundred yards from the sloop, in an off-hand manner, as if bound to Fortescue Bay. This I judged to be a piece of strategy, and so kept a sharp lookout over a small island, which soon came in range between them and the sloop, completely hiding them from view, and towards which the spray was now drifting helplessly with the tide, and with every prospect of going on the rocks, for there was no anchorage, at least none that my cables would reach. And sure enough, I soon saw a movement in the grass just on top of the island, which is called Bonnet Island, and is one hundred and thirty-six feet high. I fired several shots over the place, but saw no other sign of the savages. It was they that had moved the grass, for as the sloop swept past the island, the rebound of the tide carrying her clear, there on the other side was the boat, surely enough exposing their cunning and treachery. A stiff breeze coming up suddenly now scattered the canoes, while it extricated the sloop from a dangerous position, albeit the wind, though friendly, was still ahead. The spray flogging against current and wind made Borgia Bay on the following morning, and cast anchor there for the second time. I would now, if I could, describe the moonlit scene on the strait at midnight, after I had cleared the savages and Bonnet Island. 
a heavy cloud-bank that had swept across the sky then cleared away, and the night became suddenly as light as day, or nearly so. A high mountain was mirrored in the channel ahead, and the spray sailing along with her shadow was as two sloops on the sea. The sloop being moored, I threw out my skiff and with axe and gun landed at the head of the cove, and filled a barrel of water from a stream. Then, as before, there was no sign of Indians at the place. Finding it quite deserted, I rambled about near the beach for an hour or more. The fine weather seemed somehow to add loneliness to the place, and when I came upon a spot where a grave was marked, I went no further. Returning to the head of the cove, I came to a sort of calvary, it appeared to me, where navigators carrying their cross had each set one up as a beacon to others coming after. They had anchored here and gone on, all except the one under the little mound. One of the simple marks, curiously enough, had been left there by the steamship Columbia, sister-ship to the Columbia, my neighbour of that morning. I read the names of many other vessels, some of them I copied in my journal, others were illegible. Many of the crosses had decayed and fallen, and many a hand that put them there I had known, many a hand now still. The air of depression was about the place, and I hurried back to the sloop to forget myself again in the voyage. Early the next morning I stood out from Borgia Bay, and off Cape Quad, where the wind fell light, I moored the sloop by kelp in twenty fathoms of water, and held her there a few hours against a three-knot current. That night I anchored in Langara Cove a few miles further along, where on the following day I discovered wreckage and goods washed up from the sea. I worked all day now, salving and boating off a cargo to the sloop. The bulk of the goods was tallow in casks and in lumps from which the casks had broken away, and embedded in the seaweed was a barrel of wine which I also towed alongside. I hoisted them all in with the throat halyards which I took to the windlass. The weight of some of the casks was a little over eight hundred pounds. There were no Indians about Langara. Evidently there had not been any since the great gale which had washed the wreckage on shore. Probably it was the same gale that drove the spray off Cape Horn from March 3 to 8. Hundreds of tons of kelp had been torn from beds in deep water, and rolled up into ridges on the beach. A specimen stalk which I found entire, roots, leaves, and all, measured 131 feet in length. At this place I filled a barrel of water at night, and on the following day sailed with a fair wind at last. I had not sailed far, however, when I came abreast of more tallow in a small cove, where I anchored and boated off as before. It rained and snowed hard all that day, and it was no light work carrying tallow in my arms over the boulders on the beach. But I worked on till the spray was loaded with a full cargo. I was happy then in the prospect of doing a good business further along the coast, for the habits of an old trader would come to the surface. I sailed from the cove about noon, greased from top to toe, while my vessel was tallowed from keelson to truck. My cabin, as well as the hold and deck, was stowed full of tallow, and all were thoroughly smeared. End of chapter 9
Recording by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England. www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk